Let's pray together. Father, thank you that all around the world today, on the Lord's Day, the people of God are gathering together to hear the Word of God, to be on mission with God. And so, Father, thank you for what you're doing here at Hope Bible Church. And I pray that the name of this church would be what we experience here in the next few minutes, that we would experience the hope of the gospel to find us wherever we are, however far or near away we are from you. Spirit, Spirit of God, track us down and be personal, more personal than I can in the words that I'm about to speak inside the hearts, the homes, and the community that we live in. So God, we give our attention to you. Would you give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to the church? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, and I understand that the little people are on their way to hear the Word of God in their context, and so um, that is the best thing that I'm going to see all day long. I have my Bible open to Matthew chapter 19. I encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew 19, because does Bill use the Bible around here? Um, Did you bring a Bible? Good. You're going to need one. Uh, Because all weekend long, uh, we've been talking about marriage. We're going to continue that topic here as we get started. Now, I need to let you know, um, we shared yesterday, Andrew and I have had this crazy marriage where the first 15 years of our marriage, we actually didn't own a home. We lived in an RV travel trailer, and we traveled to different churches, basically a different church every week. We, we just kind of raised our kids on the church parking lot and the church nursery, and, and that's how we did the first 15 years of our marriage. There was a particular morning, I remember, uh, there had been an ice storm come through, and uh, you need to know that in an RV, it's, you know, it kind of sits up, it's on wheels, and the way that you get out of the RV are on these folding metal steps, but there had been an ice storm that had come through through and it had glazed those folding metal steps and so I one morning I stepped out of the RV and I hit that first step and when I did my heels of my feet went over my head and I landed on my elbow right there on that metal step that was the first thing that hit all my body weight went on that elbow now I don't exactly know what happened inside my elbow All I know is that for the last 20 years, if I touch my elbow in a certain place, there is a searing pain that goes through my arm up to my brain. Something is broken in my elbow that I don't think will ever be repaired on this side of heaven. Now, the reason I share that story is because I'm about to deal with a topic that is so sensitive that it's going to send some pain (laughs) into some people here as we get started. Let me just kind of acknowledge who I know is in the room. First of all, I know that not everybody here is married. As a matter of fact, as I look around, it might even be the majority of people in this room that are not married. And I don't know how Bill and Pam at their age can assemble so many young people in their church, but they have mastered this thing. I... It was donuts, donuts, yeah, that's amazing, and I know that the, the, it looked like the single women far outnumber the single men, so I don't know what the single men are doing in Phoenix today, but they need to be here in church. Um, now, not everybody here is married, but this is what we know, 90% of all of us at some point in our lives are going to be married. Now, when we talk about marriage, I want to be very quick to say, if you are not married, you are not half a person, and you do not need another person to be married to, to be everything God wants you to be in your life. It may be God's will for you to get married, or it may be God's will for you to live a very content, happy, fulfilled, on mission with God, single person. Interestingly, the two people in the Bible that had the most to say about marriage were single. Jesus... He did all right, following God's will, living an obedient life, right? You can too. And the Apostle Paul, um, we don't know exactly if Paul was ever married. It could be that Paul was married at one point in his life, and maybe he was widowed. Maybe Paul was divorced, and he had a lot to say about divorce. 
And so uh, we do know that at the time that he wrote half the New Testament, he was a single person, but he had a lot to say about marriage. And so not everybody here is married. Um, There are some people who um, want to be married. Maybe the number one prayer request on your prayer list is, God, send me a spouse. There are some other people in the room who are married, and your number one prayer request is that God would take your spouse away. So that, that's a message that we send, like, do you understand this? There's not another human being on the planet that can fulfill your need for love, relationship, and intimacy. Only God can fill that hole in your heart. So don't look to marriage to do something God never designed it to do. There are some other people here who have been married and now you're single again. There are some other people here who have been widowed. There's some other people here who have been divorced. There's other people here who have been single, married, single again, married again, and you've got a blended family and all the complexities of stepchildren and all of those different things, Uh, especially in the culture that we live in. There's all kinds of different circumstances. So as we read the scripture here today, I just want you to know that I understand who I'm speaking to. There are some other people here who are pretending to be married. I don't know who you are, but maybe you're living together and you've got everything that married people have except the one thing that is the most important thing, and that is the covenant, the commitment, the promise that makes you one as an individual, as as a couple. There are some other people here that have this really strange thing going on in you that you don't understand and you didn't ask for. You're not attracted to the opposite sex. You may be attracted to the same sex, and you're struggling to make sense of that. Listen, we know you're here too. You may even be married and struggling with that. And the good news of the gospel is God speaks to all of us. We're all born sexually broken. You can, you could even say that we're all born sexually disoriented. And so whether you've got same-sex attraction, opposite-sex attraction, If you are a follower of Christ, or if you're at least curious as to what Christ would say to you in your circumstance, then let's open our ears and our hearts and read what God has to say to all of us this morning. So let's begin in um, Matthew chapter 19. We're going to pick up right in verse 1, and this is what we read. Now, picking right back, right in the middle of a story here. So notice what it says. It says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, hold on to that phrase for a minute. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. So Jesus had been preaching. Here's the first point of the message. My marriage, your marriage is being minimized right now whether it's coming from external sources or internal sources, my marriage is being minimized. Jesus here um, is being followed by large crowds because Jesus has been throwing down truth bombs. It says that he had finished these sayings. What were these sayings that Jesus had finished? Well, if you look back a chapter in chapter 18, we find out what these sayings are. Jesus had been teaching on humility. He'd been teaching on temptation. He'd been teaching on what to do when you're hurt and offended and how we are to forgive. That's the context into which Jesus is about to teach us something about marriage. By the way, if you want to know something about marriage, you're going to need to need to know something about humility, what to do when you've been hurt, what to do with temptation, and how to forgive. So you might say, well, Jesus wasn't talking about marriage in chapter 18. Oh, yes, he was. Because if you're going to survive in your marriage, you're going to thrive in your marriage, you're going to need to know something about hurt and temptation and and what to do in all those things. So when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went to another crowd and he healed them there. And then a phenomena happens in verse 3. Notice what he says. It says in verse 3, And the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful? to divorce one's wife for any cause. So these Pharisees come and ask him a question. Now, anytime you're 
answering theological questions, I have discovered it is important to ask, who's asking the question? And what is the motive for the, te- for the question? Notice it said these Pharisees came to test him. And so their motive is revealed in the question. You ever get a phone call and somebody's calling and say, you know, my wife's like, is, may I speak to Andrea? Now, I don't know what you would say to that. Here's what I say. Who's calling? I want to know, do you want her to do something for you? Or do you want to do something for her? I want to know the, the motive for your call. That's going to depend on whether or not you get to speak to my wife. And so Jesus is discerning why they're asking the question. Now, does everybody understand that the Pharisees were not actually looking for the, the, the right answer? They were testing Jesus, a single man, on an issue of marriage. And so the story continues. These, these Pharisees. Now, who were these Pharisees? These Pharisees were the religious lawyers. They were the guys that had filled their heads full of Bible knowledge. They knew the Old Testament scriptures and the laws of Moses, the laws of God. They knew them expertly in their head. And so they're coming to see if what is in their head matches what's in Jesus' head. But understand, these Pharisees were... were were lacking humility. They were lacking the work of God in their heart. What was in their head never had made, uh, made it to their heart. They weren't coming to learn. They were coming to test. Now, when you get a test from God, God wants you to pass the test. These Pharisees did not want Jesus to pass the test. They, they didn't want to elevate God's design for marriage They wanted to minimize God's design for marriage. Now, before we get, you know, too judgmental on the Pharisees, here's how tricky this is. Right now, some of us are judging the Pharisees for being so legalistic. Do you know what that reveals in our hearts? We're just like the Pharisees. I don't know about you. I've got a little Pharisee living on the inside of me, and it always comes out. When I am relating to my wife, Andrea, I'm testing her to see if she's living up to the performance that I expect a wife to live by. Is she speaking kindly to me? Is she serving me? Is she uh, paying attention to me? Is she, she providing for my needs? And so before we get real judgmental about the Pharisees, understand there is a little Pharisee on the inside of me that is actually trying to minimize my marriage. It's looking for law breaking in my marriage. It's looking for a reason, a cause for me not to give my full self in service to my spouse. And so my threats being, uh, my, my marriage is being minimized by threats actually inside of me. But in our culture, um, there's a lot of threats that are minimizing our marriages even outside. Um, today, the divorce rate is twice what it was 55 years ago when I arrived on the planet. I I don't know what's happened when I arrived, but I broke something, and everything has fallen apart since 1967, and I've been working really hard to try to repair some of the damage. But in the last 50, 55 years, we've seen just the collapse. Now, I remember a generation ago going to church, and everybody was talking about the, the skyrocketing divorce rate, and we've got to do something to prevent marriages from getting divorced. That's not the problem anymore. As a matter of fact, the divorce rate is actually decreasing in our culture. Do you know why? Because nobody's getting married anymore. All these single people around, they're like, that looks scary. Like, I, I I don't know that I've ever seen a marriage that has lasted a lifetime that I would want to be. So they're all watching. If you're married, they're watching you to see if there's anything that they would want in that kind of relationship. Now, interestingly, nobody gets married because you want to be married. You get married because you want the relational connection, the emotional and the physical intimacy that comes when you give your whole heart and your whole life to one person exclusively for a lifetime that gets better over time. That's what the target is. It's not just trying to sell somebody on marriage. 
It's trying to show someone that the way that you're going to thrive is in this secure, intimate, trusting, forgiving relationship that ultimately models for the people around you the relationship that Jesus, the bridegroom, has with the bride, his church. And so the reason why there's nobody wanting to get married is because the married people are not doing a really great job of showing that this is something that you want. Do you know what a model is? A model is somebody that wears something and makes it look so good that other people want to wear it. Right now, I'm modeling this shirt. You're like, man, he looks good. I got to get me one of those, right? So our job as married people is to model the intimacy that Christ has with his church to others and make it look so good. It's like, man, I got to get me one of those. And so right now, um, that's being minimized in our culture. There's less marriage. In 1960, over 72% of American adults were married. Today, that number is less than half. More children are growing up without their parents. In 1970, 90% of all births were to married couples. Today, that number is 60%. There's more pessimism about marriage. According to Pew Research, almost half of millennials believe that marriage is obsolete. It's just a social construct that people use to control one another. And that's, that's the view of marriage. That's not Jesus' view of marriage. The reality is this. Marriage is good for you based on scientific research. Married people live longer, are physically healthier, show fewer signs of mental illness. They make more money. They build more wealth. They have better sex more often than those who are single or divorced. Divorced men are twice as likely as married men to die from heart disease, stroke, hypertension, and cancer. The chances of a middle-aged married man making it to his 65th birthday are 9 in 10. The chances of a single or divorced man making it to his 65th birthday are 6 in 10. Marriage is good for you. And yet the culture is telling us it's bad for you. And so we're living in this counterculture revolution. The culture has actually redefined marriage. The traditional secular view of marriage in almost every country, in almost every culture in the world for the last 5,000 years has understood marriage to be the legal union of a man and a woman who make a lifelong exclusive commitment to one another that results in bearing and raising their own children together and it's conditioned on a promise that they make to one another. That's not even the Christian view. That's just kind of what humanity's understood marriage to be for the last 5,000 years. But in today's culture, we've redefined it to be this. Marriage is the union of two humans who commit to romantically loving each other, caring for each other, as long as their love lasts. And it's conditioned on the feelings that the couple has toward one another. That's the reconstructed view of marriage. And it was codified by the United States Supreme Court in 2015. And so as a, as a Christian people, as a church, this is the, these are the waters that we swim in. And we have to be careful that we understand that our minds are being educated by a system that is minimizing marriage. Here's point number two. My marriage has a maker. So let's look at what Jesus had to say about marriage. Verse four, he answered them. He didn't have to, but he did. He answered them with a question. So Jesus answers their question with a question because Jesus is awesome. And he says, have you not read your Bible? Now, had they read their Bible? Yes. They'd memorized their Bible. Nobody knew the Bible better than these Bible fathead Pharisees. And so he says, haven't you read? And Jesus is basically saying, I've been reading the Bible too. And on the first page, God is so committed to marriage, marriage shows up on the first page. The Bible begins with a marriage, and it ends with a marriage. 
And everything in between is about how a father sent a son to win a bride to be in covenant love relationship for eternity. The Bible is all about a marriage story. It's a romantic comedy. And so Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? A lot of people, I've heard it said that Jesus never dealt with the topic of same-sex marriage or same-sex attraction. Oh, yeah, he did. He quoted from the first page of the Bible and said, do you not understand that God made them very distinct? male and female. And then it says in verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father, a male father, and his mother, a female mother, and hold fast to his wife, very intentional pronouns, and the two, the male and the female, who've left the male and the female of their mother and father, the two shall become one flesh. We spent the weekend talking about The goal of marriage is oneness, and that doesn't just happen on the wedding day when you say, I do. That's the beginning of the pursuit of oneness, and every marriage is either drifting toward isolation or intentionally pursuing oneness. And so that's the goal. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, God, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus takes them all the way back to the first page of the Bible. Let me ask you this. Do you believe the Bible? Oh, oh, please. I'm so disheartened. Do you want another run? Should I give him another run at that? I mean, you've been working hard with these people, right? Do you believe the Bible? Do you believe everything in the Bible? Do you believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible? Okay. Do you believe that God created an actual man named Adam and took a a rib and created this woman and you, and you bring, okay, good. I'm feeling better about your church now. All right. So good. Now listen, there's a lot of ways that we can try to like, well, I think maybe the first couple of pages were kind of poetic language and stuff like that. And, and there's room for interpretation, all these things, but you have to believe in a literal Adam because Jesus did. And if you say, well, that didn't really happen. Then what you're saying is Jesus believed something you didn't believe. That's not a good place for you. Okay. So Jesus believed in this literal man and this literal woman who were brought together, and and God was the maker of all of that. God is the initiator of the concept of marriage. What we learn from this is marriage is not a social construct of man. We and so this is this is a point that we have to believe. Either I'm going to believe marriage was a creation of God, or it was an invention of man. If it's an invention of man, then man can invent different rules as man evolves. If it was a creation of God, then it was designed and defined by God, and only God can determine the parameters of marriage. And so, If you find out where marriage comes from, then you can understand the reasons behind it. So we have to ask, where did marriage come from? When was it created? So that I can understand why it was created and how to make it work. And so in understanding all those things, we have to begin at the beginning. And that's where Jesus began. And so he says what God has joined together. Don't let man separate. Don't let man minimize. This is something that has to be protected and it has to be recognized. So marriage is designed by God and defined by God, but then it brings obligations for us. Marriage should be recognized and regulated by the laws of people who want the blessing of God. And some say, well, yeah, I don't even understand what government's doing in the marriage business. We probably just shouldn't even have marriage laws. Listen, if we believe that marriage is good for people, then we ought to protect it in our laws. Americans love freedom, but our freedoms are limited by laws. We're a free people, 
but our freedom is regulated by that which promotes the common good. That's why this morning you all drove to church on the right side of the road. Because the laws said you can't drive wherever you want. If you drive wherever you want, you're going to be a danger to the rest of us. So if you start driving on the left side of the road, we're going to arrest you. We're going to take away your freedom because you're a danger to the rest of us. And we all said, I'm so grateful for these laws. But when it comes to marriage, we have to make sure that we're protecting what's good for the rest of us, especially our children. Several years ago, um, when Andrew and I were with another ministry called uh, Life Action Ministries up in southwest Michigan, uh, Life Action has a 170-acre campground where all year long we do marriage retreats and family um, uh, retreats and build families and marriages. People come from all over the country to enjoy this camp. And, and uh, Andrew and I taught there for 21 straight years. And um, there was a time we, we actually bought a home and I, I had to go down to the, um, the tax assessor's office to get some paperwork done for our own home. And they found out that I was with Life Action. And the lady behind the counter, when she found that out, she began to frown at me. And she began to be very critical of this 170-acre campground that they could not tax because it was a nonprofit organization. And she was just spewing about how much money the county's losing because this stupid camp out there won't let us tax them. I said, well, wait a minute. Do you understand what happens there? Like, we're building marriages and families. We're helping marriages and families stay together. And I began to ask her, have you ever calculated the amount of money you're spending on trying to help orphans and, like, feed single moms with food stamps and stuff? And it's like, do you think that maybe if we could do something to, like, prevent marriages and families from falling apart, like, the, the amount of money that the, the county is spending trying to rescue all of this would, would be reduced? And she's like, oh, I've never thought about it that like, yeah, we might want to do something to encourage families from not falling apart so that we don't have to spend all the money trying to, to repair the damage on the other end. And so a nation that wants God's blessing should make laws consistent with God's laws. A nation that wants to invite God's judgment should ignore the fact that our marriage and our marriages have a maker. Number three, my marriage needs the right motivation. My marriage needs the right motivation. So in verse 7, these Pharisees said to him another question. So they asked Jesus a question. Jesus answers with a question. And then the Pharisees answer Jesus' question with a question. It doesn't seem like they're getting any conclusions here, right? They're avoiding the real answer. So they said to him, why then did Moses command, keyword, I want to underline that, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're quoting now, or they're really trying, they're giving a really bad interpretation of four verses we find in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In those verses, really, if you look at them, what's happening is there's divorce occurring all over the place, and Moses regulates the divorces because he's essentially protecting women from being treated as a commodity, just kind of being exchanged from one man to the other. And Moses says, time out, you can't just pass women around like they're property. That's really what the interpretation of those were. But Jesus says to them in verse 8, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed, not commanded, allowed you to divorce your wives because from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now let me just say, we're not going to have time to get into all like the grounds of divorce and can I get a divorce. That Jesus doesn't want to talk to them about divorce. He wants to talk to them about Marriage. And so that's what we're going to talk about here uh, for the next few minutes. So why did Moses allow divorce? And Jesus answers them. 
It's one reason. If you really want to know the cause of every divorce, Jesus gets to the root issue. It's hard-heartedness. It's hardness of heart. So they want to ask, is it lawful to divorce? And Jesus really turns it around and, and again, asks a different question. Is it graceful to stay married? Because there are no enduring marriages without grace and forgiveness. But we're all prone to be these lawyers in our marriage. We're all kind of evaluating the performances of our spouse. I'm always looking to see if Andrea's broken any laws and giving me cause not to live up to my own responsibilities in marriage. It's a self-righteous, pharisaical attitude that's always looking for a reason to get divorced rather than the heart of Jesus always looking for the right motivation to fulfill the responsibility within marriage. Jesus knew they asked the wrong question. Jesus didn't want to talk about what causes a marriage to end. He wanted to talk about what causes a marriage to endure. And divorce is not caused by a shortage of laws. Divorce is caused by a shortage of grace. And these hard-hearted Pharisees had no category for conversations about the heart. They could only think about marriage in terms of the head and laws. And they went to the law rather than going to the heart of God in grace. The durability of your marriage has little to do with the performance of your spouse. It has everything to do with the condition of your heart. So what is a hard heart? We can talk about that for a while. Let me give you two things. A hard heart is a heart that no longer feels or extends grace. A hard heart no longer feels grace from God. There's a lot of reasons why your heart may be hard. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a home and you saw the, the conflict and the fights and the dysfunction of a mom and dad. And your heart was hardened as a way to protect yourself. And maybe your heart was hardened toward the whole idea of marriage because of what you saw between your mom and your dad. Maybe your heart's been hardened because you've been hurt. You've been heartbroken, and so you've become hard-hearted in the process. Maybe you're trying to protect yourself. Maybe you don't want to be vulnerable. Maybe you don't want to open your life up to risk. Listen, every relationship involves the risk of being heartbroken. But you have a choice as to whether you become hard-hearted. And it all depends upon the heart of God being something that you lean into every day. And so this hard-heartedness is something that actually causes us to lose the right motivation. And teaching God's laws on divorce is going is not going to prevent many divorces. I grew up in a, in a church. I didn't, I didn't really go to church until I was a teenager. But, man, our church was strong on the Bible. It was strong on truth. And, and man, it, it laid the law down on you don't ever want to separate what God has joined together and is really, you know, hammering that truth. And the reality is people in our church got divorced all the time because preaching law is just not going to prevent many divorces. But talking about the heart of God and talking about the condition of our own heart, the reality is your heart's going to do whatever your heart's going to do. And so so important that we understand how to have a soft heart. And that means understanding that I am no more worthy of God's grace than, than my spouse may be because of her poor, poor performance. But because I've got the heart of God and the grace of God, I can extend that out to others. So how do I soften my heart? Let me give you three things. Number one, 
Ask God to let you feel a father's heart towards you as a son or a daughter of God. Do you have the kind of love relationship with Father God that can soften your heart so that you can risk being vulnerable with another person and getting close to another person and pursuing another person for a lifetime, committing yourself, trusting another person, and then receiving God's grace and healing every time that heart is broken. Number two, identify the wound that stabbed you in the heart and forgive. Maybe it was from a past relationship. Maybe it was from a mom or a dad. Maybe the hard-heartedness in you needs to be healed by Jesus before you can open your heart to another person. And the last thing is, don't wait to feel something before you do something. Like, I just don't feel the love I once had toward my spouse. I remember how passionate we were when we were dating. And over time, we've just kind of isolated ourselves and we've drifted apart. Listen, don't wait to feel something before you act. Love is a verb. And so extending love and acts of service and words of kindness, you'll find very quickly that your heart will follow your actions. That's the way you soften your heart. Here's the last thing. My marriage preaches a message. My marriage preaches a message. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Do you understand what they're saying? They're sitting back and they watch this, this conversation go back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus. And really what they just realized, the conclusion of all of this, is Jesus just elevated the bar on marriage. He elevated its importance, he elevated its permanence, and he elevated what God was trying to say through it, bringing two people together as one. And they're sitting back and they're saying, wait, 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 wait. If you're telling me marriage is permanent, if, if I don't have an escape, I don't think I want to ever get married. And some of you are thinking the same thing. And so you're in good company with the disciples. Notice what Jesus says to him. Verse 11, he said to them, not everybody can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, Marriage is a grace. Mar mar marriage is something that God initiates. God gives you the grace. And it's only for those who have a view of God that realizes there's not another human being on the planet that's ever going to meet the deepest needs of my heart. And so I'm going to have to get all of that from God. I'm going to risk get getting in a covenant love relationship with another person because I have security with God. And if you have security with God, then you can take the risk in establishing covenant relationship with another imperfect person on the planet. Um, I have four children. Two of them are married. One of them, my daughter Allie, is a very content, single, 25-year-old woman. And she's like, yeah, if I get married, that's great, that's great. I don't know. It's like I'm being very happy and productive right now. Um, I have two children that are married. My, my oldest daughter, Brooke, was the first of my kids to get married. And um, so this creepy guy named David showed up and, um, you know, won her heart. And no, I, I, David's a great guy. And, um, and they came to us and they said, hey, we're, I think we're going to get married. I'm like, okay, great. And, and so I was the pastor of her church. And so she asked me if I would perform the wedding ceremony, if I would officiate. So I had double duty on that day. I'm the father of the bride, and I'm the pastor of the church. And so Brooke, you know, she came to me. She's like, hey, Dad, I know you've got a lot to say about marriage. You do these weekend marriage conferences all the time. And listen, Dad, we don't want our wedding to be a marriage conference, okay? And you've got like 10 minutes to, to do your thing. And, you know, we got, we got music and we got prayer and we got other people going to read scripture and stuff. It's like, okay. And so I had to reduce everything that I wanted to say 
especially to David, down to a 10-minute thing, all right? So I, I, what I did was I, I smashed everything that I could think of to say and everything that the Bible has to say. I, I, you'll be so proud of me. I smashed it into one sentence because I wanted them to know the answer to the question, what is marriage? You want to know what marriage is? Marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God, conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. Did you get that? Let me unpack that a little bit. Let's unpack that a little bit. Marriage is a holy covenant. Now, you and I, we tend to think about contracts, right? Um, I have a guy who mows my yard for him. I pay him $100 a month. He comes and mows the yard, trims the bushes, does a really great job. We have a contractual relationship. If he mows the yard, I pay him the money. If I don't pay him the money, he doesn't mow the yard. It's a contractual relationship. Now listen, if you're in a relationship like that, you're a contractor. Do you know what comes with contractors? Inspections. You don't want to be married to a contractor. And you do not want to be married to an inspector. That's why marriage is a covenant, not a contract. And notice, it's a holy covenant. This is something that doesn't make sense outside of a proper doctrinal understanding of the holiness of God. The fact that we are unholy, God is unholy, and yet because of his covenant love for us, he pursued us, he broke down our resistance, he won our hearts, and we've entered into this covenant love relationship. That means marriage is far more significant than we give it credit for. It means that God cares about our marriage even more than we do. It means that God is more committed to our marriage than we are. And when our covenants, when we, are, when we keep our covenants, we're blessed by the holiness of God. Do you want God to bless your marriage? Then you have to do it God's way. And so many people are like, I want God to bless my marriage. And it's like, you're not even married. You're pretending that you're married. Some people say, well, Trent, we're, we don't need a piece of paper. We live together. We got kids together. We, we, like, we do life together. It's like, we don't need a piece of paper. Yes, you do. Why? Because this thing is so significant. Like, we're going to file paperwork down at the courthouse. And on the day that you wake up and say, I don't really feel married today. We're pulling out the paper. <laughs> you made a promise. You say, well, we're married in our hearts. You're married in your pants. That, just be honest. That's, that's what you're going. Like We're married in God's eyes. You're sinning in God's eyes. Marriage is a holy covenant conditioned on an irrevocable promise. Your wedding vows and that marriage license serves as a public record of the promises that you make. That's why you invite everybody that you know. You spend way too much money to witness those vows. And if you go to the wedding, you witness the vows. The moment they start breaking the vows, you show up and say, hey, I heard you made a promise. I love you too much and I love your marriage too much. God loves your marriage too much to let you break your promise. Your promises create a culture of trust and faithfulness in this marriage. Your promises call you back to one another on the days you don't feel the love. And your promises will expel fears that you could ever do something for which you cannot be forgiven. That's what the promise is for. It's a holy covenant conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness. We've already said it. Every moment of your marriage, you are either intentionally pursuing oneness or you are unintentionally drifting apart because marriage takes work. Oneness is the result of pursuing the same passion, choosing to move in the same direction, choosing to worship the same God with the same intensity. Andrea and I are so different. We got married before all those online dating things, you know, 
de-harmony where you like, here's my personality, and now if I can just find someone with the identical personality, they'll match us together. If we had used one of those, we never would have been matched because Andrea is so different. I'm right, and she's different, right? And she would say, like, Trent is so different. And so the reason we need the promise is because we got to work it out every day to go back to what we've made the promises for. And you are getting married to an imperfect person. Please hear me. There are no enduring marriages without forgiveness. Every enduring marriage will have thousands of minor acts of forgiveness and a few major acts of forgiveness. The moment that you feel neglected or unloved or sinned against, you must remember there is nothing that has ever been done to you by your spouse that you, by your sin, have not done to Jesus. You crucified the Son of God. And he looked at us and said, Father, forgive them. And because we are forgiven for the sins we've committed against God, we now have the grace to extend that forgiveness to our spouse until you are overwhelmed and brought to your knees with the fact that you have been forgiven. You will never extend that kind of forgiveness to your spouse. But if you will bend that forgiveness out towards your spouse, your marriage can last a lifetime with an imperfect person of the opposite sex. God designed a husband and a wife with unique but very complementary roles. God's made you equal. He hasn't made you the same. Men, your job is to love and to lead, to nourish and to cherish your spouse. We talked about that yesterday in our session. Women, your job is to use your incredible power to encourage and to respect and to help your very needy husband. For a lifetime. Marriages that fall apart and marriages that endure for a lifetime essentially face the same problems. You will either allow those difficulties to drive you into isolation or you'll allow those difficulties to pull you together. And at the end of your lifetime, you will leave a legacy either of love, faithfulness, and forgiveness or a legacy of brokenness, bitterness, and regret. At the end of your lifetime, what do you want to look back on? And finally, marriage is a holy covenant initiated by God and conditioned on an irrevocable promise to pursue oneness with an imperfect person of the opposite sex for a lifetime for the glory of God. You don't just get married and stay married because it's right. It's good. It feels warm and fuzzy. And I want to be a respectable person. And I want to avoid pain. All of those are good reasons, but it's not the ultimate reason for marriage. Because do you realize that every marriage is temporary? It only lasts a lifetime. It doesn't last an eternity. But what you do in this lifetime will have eternal consequences. Every marriage will either display or distort the glory of God. And when your marriage is filled with love and trustworthiness and faithfulness and forgiveness, do you know what you're doing? Your marriage is a mirror to the world of the love of God. Every marriage will either display or distort the glory of God. Do you remember where we started? Jesus finished these sayings and crowds gathered. Do you remember what he said? And he healed them there. Every marriage, no matter how broken, no matter how wounded, Jesus has the power to heal you here. But it will require a soft heart to come before him, to humbly admit, I've broken my promises. I've been self-consumed. 
I've been a lawyer in our marriage, looking for causes and reasons and evaluating the performance as an inspector because I've been in a contractual relationship with my spouse. And I'm coming and I'm laying all that down. And for the first time, maybe in years, I understand. Marriage is a holy covenant. It's more significant than I have ever realized. Can I ask you just to bow your heads? I want to give you a moment just to reflect on what God's said by His Spirit. Whether you're single, married, single again, married again, same-sex attracted, the power of God has everything required to heal you. Maybe you'd bring to him even the woundedness that you experienced from your family of origin. Maybe even to admit that whatever you've been watching on Netflix or seeing on TikTok has actually minimized marriage in your own heart and in your own mind and you want to come back and understand the right motivation is that my marriage has a maker and it's ultimately for the glory of God. Why don't you just tell him that in prayer right now? Father, I come to you. Bring me my woundedness. My heart's been hardened toward you, toward my spouse. Would you heal my heart? Give me hope once again. We've isolated ourselves, we've drifted, we haven't been intentional. And God, today I, I want to lean into the living hope that is available through your grace. Father, I pray for every person, every individual, every husband, every wife, every marriage. God, our hearts can be so hardened by the things that we see around us and even the internal Pharisee that we can be. And so God, we bring all of that to you today. Jesus, thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for the cross that promises fresh starts and new beginnings for all who will come to you by faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.